Ukraine continues to strike deep within Russian territory. A major drone barrage earlier in the week destroyed at least two military transport planes at Russian air bases in the Kursk, Belgorod and Moscow regions. Plus, Antonio Guterres tries to resurrect the Black Sea grain deal. We have some uh, concrete solutions uh, for the concerns allowing for an effective uh, uh, or more effective access of uh, um, Russian uh, food and fertilizers to global markets at adequate prices. And later in the program, it's back to school season in Ukraine and we meet the wife of a man held prisoner by Russia. Today is Friday, September 1st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. They're making another attempt to revive the Black Sea grain deal. That story coming up soon. First, though, drones, and a lot of them. A Reuters report quotes Russia's defense ministry on Friday, saying it's destroyed a total of 281 Ukrainian drones over the past week. VOA is unable to verify this, and Russia, for its part, has repeatedly struck Ukraine with waves of one-way drones carrying explosive payloads, which are far cheaper than missiles and can be difficult and expensive for air defense systems to intercept. For more on drones, here's Charles Adela Desma. Russian officials say air defenses intercepted drones heading toward three of the country's western regions. Moscow airports briefly halted flights, but no major damage or injuries were reported, according to Russian authorities. Meanwhile, satellite images indicate a major drone barrage earlier in the week destroyed at least two military transport planes at Russian air bases in the Kursk, Belgorod and Moscow regions. Drones aimed at targets inside Russia and blamed by Moscow on Ukraine have become almost Almost a daily occurrence. Recently, the drones have reached deeper into Russia. I'm Charles Tuladesma. And speaking of attacks inside Russian territory, Mikhailo Podlyak, senior advisor to the Ukrainian president, said on Friday that attacks on Russian territory will increase and that they're coming from inside Russia by partisans allied with Ukraine. First of all, Ukrainian attacks take place on its occupied territories. Their numbers have increased. The number is high, especially on the Crimean Peninsula. Concerning attacks on the Russian Federation, there is an increasing number of attacks by unidentified drones launched from the territory of the Russian Federation, and the number of these attacks will increase, because this is the stage of the war when hostilities are gradually being transferred to the territory of the Russian Federation. There is a large number of people who support the resistance of Ukraine. These are citizens of the Russian Federation. They take part in destroying certain military capabilities of the Russian Federation on Russian soil. They directly attack military or military-related objects, not only near Russia's border territories, but also deep in the rear of the Russian Federation. All this is being destroyed by citizens of the Russian Federation. They support our struggle, but they are Russian citizens. That senior advisor to the Ukrainian president, Mikhailo Podlyak, on Friday. 
United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres is taking another shot at resurrecting the Black Sea grain deal. He said on Thursday he sent a proposal to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov aimed at reviving the agreement. We presented a set of concrete proposals uh, in a letter I've sent to the uh, Russian Foreign Minister. We presented a set of concrete proposals allowing uh, to uh, create the conditions for the renewal of the uh, Black Sea Initiative. We believe that the Black Sea Initiative has given a very important contribution to make the food markets more adequate to our objectives of food security. It has brought down prices, it has created conditions for access to the global markets of many countries, namely in the developing world. And we believe it uh, would be extremely important to renew it. And at the same time, uh, we took into concern uh, r- the Russian uh, uh, requests. And I believe we presented a proposal that uh, could be the basis for a renewal. But a renewal that must be stable. I mean, we cannot have a Black Sea initiative that moves from crisis to crisis, from suspension to suspension. We need to have something that works and that works to the benefit of everybody. Russia quit the deal in July, a year after it was brokered by the U.N. and Turkey, complaining that its own food and fertilizer exports faced obstacles and that not enough Ukrainian grain was going to countries in need. Guterres' letter comes ahead of a meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Turkish sources say the pair will meet on Monday and primarily discuss the Black Sea grain exports. The Black Sea grain deal was intended to combat a global food crisis that the United Nations said would be worsened by Russia's February 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine are both world-leading grain exporters. Guterres was asked by reporters about the specifics of his latest proposal and how it would address Russia's concerns. The proposal is relating uh, to the need, as I said, to reestablish the Black Sea Initiative. And at the same time, we have some uh, concrete solutions uh, for the concerns allowing for an effective, uh, uh, a more effective access of uh, um, Russian uh, food and fertilizers to global markets at adequate prices. And I believe that uh, uh, working seriously, uh, we can have a a positive solution for everybody, for the Ukraine, for the Russian Federation, but more important than everything else for the world in a moment in which so many countries are facing enormous difficulties in relation to guarantee the food security of their populations. A Russian diplomat, though, speaking on the condition of anonymity, told Reuters earlier on Thursday that there are no revelations in Guterres' letter to Lavrov and that it just sums up previous U.N. ideas which didn't fly. Lavrov said earlier on Thursday, after meeting with Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan in Moscow, that Russia sees no sign that it will receive the guarantees that would allow it to resume the deal. While Russian exports of food and fertilizer are not subject to Western sanctions imposed after the invasion of Ukraine, Moscow has said restrictions on payments, logistics, and insurance have hindered the shipments. 
And in a related story, it started as one man's hobby, but watching Russian cargo ships in the Bosphorus Straits and spotting those that are busting sanctions by carrying illegal cargo from occupied ports in Ukraine has become a crucial resource for global media and others who monitor compliance. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away from his terrace, Bjork Ushuk captures with his camera another Russian cargo ship passing Istanbul's Bosphorus waterway from the Black Sea to European markets and beyond. It started as a hobby, but for Ushuk, a regional political analyst, monitoring the ships has become a personal passion. I'm interested with Russian foreign policy and watching ships on the Bosphorus really gives clues about Russian foreign policy and what they are, um, what they are engaging, what they are planning to do in the upcoming months. With the Bosphorus waterway narrowing to a few hundred metres, monitoring ships is relatively easy. Ushuk recalls the name of the ships, the cargo and the flag it's sailing under. He works with an international network of volunteers and non-government organisations that share data online on the movement of Russian cargo ships. The information is crucial for world media and others who monitor compliance. Ushuk's website, bosphorusobserver.com, has become an important go-to resource for media, including Reuters news agency, which uses his photos, with sanction-busting ships often turning off their automatic identification system, or AIS, that allows them to be tracked by international authorities, monitoring efforts by people like Ushuk are vital, says organizations that work to expose Russian sanction-busting ships. Says George Voloshin, a global financial crime expert at ACAMS, a US-based watchdog. I think this is very valuable because actually um, a common technique is to manipulate your AIS signal um, by, for example, um, just turning down uh, your transponder or trying to manipulate to interfere with it so that your ship appears to be a different place in a different location. So all of those leads are potentially valuable. Voloshin says such monitoring helped expose Russia's exports of stolen Ukrainian grain and coal from Black Sea port that it occupied in Ukraine, much of which Ushuk recorded passing through the Bosphorus waterway. Moscow denies accusations that it's busting sanctions. The waters of Istanbul are under limited Turkish jurisdiction and are an international hub for hundreds of empty cargo ships and tankers that frequently change owners. Experts say that makes tracking difficult and creates conditions favourable to those seeking to circumvent a long list of sanctions. Adding to the difficulties in applying the sanctions is Turkey's refusal to enforce them. Ankara says it's not bound by them. Trade between Russia and Turkey has surged since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. In 2015, Ushuk exposed Russia's export of arms by sea to the Syrian government for its fight against rebels. Now he spends most of his spare time tracking ships, which he expects to continue for many years, as Russia shows no signs of changing its behaviour. Dorian Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. It's back to school time for kids across Ukraine, and authorities received a scary call threatening 
all schools in the city of Kiev. Anna Chernikova is there. Yes, yeah, so it's quite uh, quite a start of the starting year for in Ukraine today and in Kiev particularly. Uh, according to Vitaly Klitschko, all 420 schools in Kiev opened their doors uh, to children and um, almost all schools, only three schools don't have um, renovated shelters or, or shelters uh, at all. Uh, the rest have shelters and everything needed in case there is a uh, shelling uh, and uh, in case uh, air raid alarm is on. And how did the first day of school go? Uh, well, uh, today it was uh, quite a tough day for Kiev police because um, it was anonymous call and information that all Kiev schools uh, are mined, uh, and uh, you, and Kiev police had to have uh, the work done in order to check this information. So, uh, Kiev students uh, they had a short day today uh, because they had to. Well, they, they had to finish earlier. But just to reiterate, everybody's okay. There were no mines. There were no bombs in the schools. Um, yes, apparently it was a fake call, but still, uh, police had to had to work it out. So, for now, uh, there is no information about any accidents uh, around uh, around Kiev, and uh, yeah, so everything is fine. Now that's school getting started in Kiev. What about the rest of the country? What about the frontline areas? Uh, it's it's more complicated, of course. Uh, Frontline areas, uh, m- most of schools uh, and m- more schools uh, had to start uh, over online. Uh, it was f- for some schools it was it was impossible to to start offline studies because some schools were just uh, destroyed physically or heavily damaged physically, and it was not enough time for local governments to rebuild them. But for, for particularly, I had a chance to talk to people from Izum uh, in Kharkiv region. Um, as we all remember, Izum was um, uh, one of the cities under occupation for over six months uh, under Russian occupation, and um, it was uh, liberated uh, last autumn. Uh, and uh, in Izum, uh, almost all buildings are either damaged or destroyed. It's uh, I was there personally, and I saw that. And uh, unfortunately, schools as well. All the schools in Izum either destroyed or heavily damaged. But still, uh, children had a chance to to start their studies today, and. Um, uh, and even uh, one school opened its doors physically, so offline. However, children will have mixed studies, both online and offline. And generally, how do parents feel about sending their kids away from the home to school where there might be um, air raids, bombs? Um, definitely, it's uh, it's 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 complicated. Uh, of course, and definitely uh, it's, um, you know, mentally difficult for uh, parents to let their children go uh, away, uh, especially in the frontline areas. But I should say that when talking to people, uh, those people who made this decision to come back to their homes uh, at the frontline areas or uh, liberated areas uh, that were under occupation, they uh, kind of, you know, realize the risks and they realize that these risks are um, present uh, all the time, not only when their children are at school. So. It's just a decision that uh, goes in line with the decision to stay in that areas or come back to that areas. And we'll leave it there for today. Anna Chernikova in Kiev. Anna, as always, thank you for your time today. 
Thank you, Steve. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. How is the war going and how will the addition of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine's arsenal change things? Alexei Kovalenko is with VOA's Ukrainian service. He spoke with retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. Pentagon just announced that United States will train Ukrainian pilots and some personnel in uh, in the next months for F-16 fighters yet training. And Norway, Denmark and Netherlands will donate uh, F-16s totaling the uh, about 60 fighter jets. What does this mean for the battlefield in Ukraine? Well, this is a long-term issue. This is not a short-term solution. You're not going to see Ukrainian-flown F-16s. I, I, I suspect not any this calendar year over the battlefield. Uh, I think over time, there's a lot of training that has to happen here. First, you know, I think so far they've identified 28 or so pilots, you know, eight of whom speak sufficient English and 20 of whom are going to get some English training. And then, and because you do need very specific, you know, for flight safety and things, you really do need a, uh, you know, um, a, a, a high proficiency in English to do this training and, and get the tactical advantage. So, you know, I think that will take some period of time. We also need to train mechanics. These planes can't be recovering in, you know, in Warsaw, you know, after a combat mission. They need to be recovering, you know, at uh, Ukrainian airfields and being serviced by Ukrainian technicians. These, you know, although F-16s are, uh, you know, in the in the kind of when you look at the range of military fighter aircraft are reasonably um, easy to maintain. It still takes a great deal of technical knowledge to do that. So the training of the mechanics, the training of the pilots, you know, we got to time that out so it comes together at the right moment probably sometime next spring or early summer. Um, and the number of pilots, you know, your, your, your number of pilots to planes is usually more pilots than planes. You know, you, you mentioned a, a promised number of 60, and I mentioned a, an available pilot pool of 28. So over time, that pilot pool needs to go up. According to a lot of experts with whom Voice of America talked, Ukraine is getting uh, enough military aid and support to stay in the war and to fight this battle, but not enough to win. Do you think that Kremlin is still somehow successful in preventing Ukraine from getting more crucial military support from Western allies? Look, I'm not sure that Russia is the reason that that the Ukraine isn't getting the weapons in the timely fashion that's needed or our own kind of like provocation fear in the United States and among Western allies that we'd somehow overly provoke Russia by providing it. But, you know, we went through this with tanks. We went through it with Gimblers. We went through it with cluster munitions. We're going to go through it. We just went through it with F-16s. We'll eventually go through it with attackums and deliver attackums. You know, this this unnecessary delay while we while we, you know, express angst over the provocation of Russia is coming at the, you know, you know, at the at the the consequence being more Ukrainian battlefield casualties. You know, the United States needs to deliver the weapons that the uh, Ukrainian uh, general staff and that the U.S. Joint, Joint Chiefs feel are the right munitions to be delivered, the right equipment to, 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 uh, to, to win. And, uh, you know, the United States is not playing for a draw here. Uh, to the degree that we're doing the wrong thing, it's not malicious. It's it's just an error. You know, it's not on purpose. Um, but we need to. I think the criticism that we haven't provided the weapons in a timely fashion is fair. Um, look, I say that in the context the Biden administration has been doing the right thing 
Forty billion dollars of military aid was the right thing. Another twenty billion uh, for the next year, thirty billion is the right thing. And uh, and uh, but the timing of this munitions delivery has uh, has been painful, and it's come at the uh, the consequence of Ukrainian battlefield casualties. That's retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery speaking with VOA's Alexei Kovalenko. And finally today, Ukrainian leaders and advocates say that Russia has been holding more than 20,000 Ukrainians in captivity since the start of its full-scale invasion. From Warsaw, Poland, Lisa Bakalets has the story of the agonizing wait for one woman whose husband was detained in October and taken to a prison in Moscow. Olga and Yuri Kayove are from Kherson in southern Ukraine. When the war started, Yuri joined the local Red Cross initiative, bringing humanitarian aid from Ukrainian-controlled Zaporizhia to Kherson, which Russia occupied at the time. On one of these trips, Yuri was arrested by Russian forces. Olga Kayova says that on August 6, 2022, an acquaintance who was with Yuri called her and told that her husband had been detained. Later, she found out that her husband had been held in the occupied cities of Melitopol and Kherson and then transferred to a detention center in Simferopol. She heard no more and feared he was dead. Olga Kayova says that on October 6, a lawyer from Simferopol called her. The lawyer sent a photo of a note handwritten by her husband. That's when she realized that he was alive. The lawyer said the Russians accused Yuri of taking part in international terrorism. She said that a couple of weeks later, the lawyer informed her that her husband had been taken to the Lefortova prison in Moscow. This October, it will be a year since he has been there. And there are many more like him, civilians from Ukraine considers Russian-held hostages. The UN says there are hundreds of cases. Ukrainian leaders say there are tens of thousands. Russia does not acknowledge holding civilians at all, let alone its reasons for doing so. Alona Lunyova, a Ukrainian specialist on human rights and deportations, says that according to the Ukrainian Parliament Commissioner for Human Rights, Russia is holding between 23,000 and 25,000 Ukrainian civilians from Ukraine considers hostages. The Kayov family's story was included in the film Her Sons, which was based on evidence collected by the Rafael Lemkin Center for Documenting Russian Crimes in Ukraine. Director Hanna Bergova says the film has four stories about civilian hostages. Two of them are in Moscow's Lefortova prison. The third is in Rostov. The fourth person spent 54 days in captivity in then-occupied Kherson and now is free. Analysts say that the only thing relatives and human rights defenders can do for captive Ukrainian civilians is publicize their cases. Unlike prisoners of war, abducted civilians are not part of exchanges under international law. Lunyova, the human rights specialist, says that prisoners of war at least have international status under the Geneva Convention. In the case of abducted civilians, there are no established protocols. She says that in any case, exchanging Ukrainian civilians for Russian prisoners of war is not an option for Ukraine.
She said that without exaggeration there are millions of Ukrainians in the occupied parts of the country and if the Ukrainian state allows the exchange of Ukrainian civilians for Russian soldiers, then by tomorrow, she says, Ukraine will see the Russians taking another 20,000 or more civilian hostages. Ukrainian authorities and human rights activists are calling for international third-party mediation to help gain the release of captured civilians. Olga Kayova, meanwhile, has managed to find her husband a private lawyer. Thanks to the lawyer's efforts, she periodically gets notes from her husband that give her hope that he will come home one day. Lesia Bakalets for VOA News, Warsaw. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. This is the voice of America, Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.